0: Well, last week we began to dig into the Lord's prayer because his disciples, notice, they had seen something about him. There's lots that should catch our attention about Jesus. But something they'd seen is the consistency of his prayer life and the intimacy that he had with his father. I hope you realize prayer is not just getting things from God. Prayer is getting to know God. And they saw that. And they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray. But the model prayer and the pattern that he gave us did not give them the attitude or the approach that you should have when you pray. Last week we talked about it. it's giving you components. It's giving you the what. What should your prayers consist of, but not how. And so today he wants, us, he wants to give us the how. You realize it matters what you pray and how you pray. Both matter. And so in order to give us the how, he's going to tell a parable. I hope right now some of you would just want to stand up. It's all you can do to not stand up and say, why did he ever tell a parable? Because I've said this so many times. He would tell a parable in order to shock us and shake us from our conventional human thinking. In other words, he knows that the how is going to be so different than you might think that he's going to have to tell a parable to get it across. He's going to tell a parable to help us know not just what, but how. How can you approach God in prayer? So now turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 and follow along as i begin beginning reading in verse 1. Again, we're going to hear the what. And then he's going to go on to give us how. Luke 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive, say it, everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Look at me a minute. You got to understand in that day, if you think what in the world, in that day, hospitality was huge in their culture. It was a shame to not do it. There were not hotels and motels. So when people traveled, they would often travel at night, late at night, to avoid the excessive heat of the Middle East. This is not weird. People are traveling. Now they've arrived at a friend's home. This person needs to be able to feed them. But he doesn't have anything. So he goes to his neighbor, who's a friend, at midnight, asking for food. I've got nothing to set before him, verse seven. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door's now shut, my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Again, look at me. They're not all in one big brass bed together. In that culture, often it was very simple home, but part of the home would have a raised platform to get it off the dirt. And on that raised platform, often there would be a stove even that would just burn slightly throughout the night to keep people warm. And being together also helped you stay warm. They're on mats on this platform all together. And often they would bring the animals in to that other side of the house. This guy is saying, and everyone understood this, if I get up. You know, sometimes we think if I get up, it might wake somebody. You can drop the word might. If he gets up, kids are up, animals are snorting and kicking and carrying on, this is going to be a major hubbub. I'm not getting up. We're all settled down for the night. Verse 8. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Friendship's not enough. Won't get it done. I'm not getting up just because you're my friend. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. We're going to come back to that. I'll tell you what that's all about. And I tell you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened now he's going to shift from simple friendship to father what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then who are evil Now, right there is worth noting that helps us banish the psychological notions that we're born good. People are basically good. Give them some good housing and tell them that they're good and they'll be good. No, they're evil. We're born evil. And he's talking to his disciples. So there's your case for we are evil. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much More will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So what does Jesus want us to get a hold of here? Not about the what, but the how, how do you pray? How can you approach God? What would this look like? Well, number one, you must know who you are. You must know who you are as you approach God. In other words, if you want to pray the way Jesus prays, he says, you will have to embrace your new status as a child of God. Child of God. That's the other thing that the world gets wrong. Every time rock groups come together to do a big benefit concert to, for food or whatever, it's, we are the children of God. We're all the children. No. No one wants to sing, we're we're enemies of God, we're enemies of God. You have to become a child of God. You have to be born again. You have to be adopted. You're not a child of God until you know the son of God. But when you do, you're going to have to embrace your status as a child of God. You say, Brad, what are you talking about? I'm talking about verse 2. I'm talking about that word in verse 2. Look at it again. He said to them, when you pray, say, say it, say it louder, Father. Father. Oh, think about it. Not king, not friend, not judge, not creator. All that would be true about God. He didn't say that. Father, when you pray, say, Father. Let that trickle down. And settle into your soul because it changes not what, but how you approach God when you know he's your father. And stay with me if you had kids, if you have grandkids right now, then, you know, oh, my goodness, children approach their father in ways that everyone else would know is inappropriate, totally inappropriate. Do you know who that is? You can't just, you can't just, you can't. They may be a five-star general. They may be a CEO. They may be the president of the United States. But if it's your son or daughter, all the rules change, right? All the rules are different. Why? Oh, he's my son. She's my daughter. She's my daughter. Jesus said, when you pray, He doesn't say, call him. Call him incomprehensible mystery. Call him holy, holy, holy. Call him all-consuming fire. I just read that yesterday in Exodus. He's an all-consuming fire. Call him eternal judge in the last days. All these things are true. Call him king, king, king. When you pray, call him, say it, father father, because that changes not what, but how you approach him, which is why I'm saying to you, you, I chose my words carefully. You have to embrace this new status, not just consider the possibility, not say one day I hope to earn the right of acting that way, but I'm not good enough yet. I haven't done enough. Oh, I'm going to put it in a theological box and say, I know the Bible talks that way. Cha-ching, check that box. Nope. Embrace it. I can't do that for you. Someone can tell you about it, but only you can embrace it. Every moment of every day. I'm his child. He's my father. I'm his child. He's my father. He's my father. He's my father. And if you're pushing back and saying, but wait a minute, Brad, what about, what about, what about, what about? Oh, yes, he is holy, 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 high and lifted up, all-knowing, all those things you think about. And on some levels, totally incomprehensible to us. Don't lose sight of any of that, ever. Because when you keep that in mind, it makes it all the more special and precious that this being says, call me father, 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 father. Why? So that you don't make the mistake of thinking he's so great and so distant and so busy ruling and reigning over the universe that surely he would be unavailable to me and uninterested in anything I have to say, as well as extremely critical about how I said it. Did I say it just right? As well as how often I'm saying it. When you know he's your father, you know that's not true for you. He's not too great. He's not too distant and he's not too busy for you because he is your father, father. Father. I'll never forget as a young pastor, 1986, still had some hair, South Carolina, fresh out of Bible college seminary, I'll never forget as a young pastor in the first years of ministry, I've never been so undone. I'm type A, you know, get it done. I was overwhelmed by the demands of ministry. I was so unprepared for what was coming my way. They taught me how to do a baptism, how to do a wedding, how to do a funeral and how to preach. That's not what mostly is happening. If you ever wonder, what do they do during the week? We're up to our eyeballs in mess and confusion and horror and brokenness that seminary doesn't tell you anything about. I was overwhelmed by the level of mess and brokenness and confusion that was all coming in my way. I'd never been exposed to this mess. And it's not just, oh, I'm exposed to it. They expect me to do something about it. And I had no idea what to do about any of it. And so one day... My meetings were Tuesday, I still remember Tuesday at 10:30, I'd get 30 minutes with the senior pastor. I would have my mother and her friends pray, 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 because it was terrifying. Not a nice man. And I remember one day I'm in my his office pouring out my heart. And when I finally took a breath, which it took a while, I'd probably used up 28 of my 30 minutes. I'll never forget. He took his pen and he tapped it on a piece of paper on his desk that I I could see had tick marks on it. And he said, do you realize you've said, you know, 17 times. And then he just stared at me in silence and disgust. As you can imagine, I was crushed. As I realized. He had done nothing But keep a record of how I had irritated him. How many times I'd irritated him in how I was making my request. How I was approaching him. And so this shouldn't surprise you. That changed forever more. How often I went to him. And what I thought about myself when I finally did go to him. Because I knew. He's not listening. He's not loving me. In fact, he's probably judging me and critiquing me for how I'm saying it. So I better say it right. Don't waste his time. Don't irritate him. Don't annoy him. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. God, our Father, is not like that. And if you're pushing back, we I get it a lot in our culture now. Why do we talk about God as Father? So many bad fathers. Stay with me. God, our father, is not like that. So if you had a bad one, banish forevermore all of your earthly notions about Father, because this is your heavenly father. He is a good and loving and perfect. He's everything that a father could be and should be your heavenly father. Father. Don't take your earthly father and what happened there and lay it on your heavenly father and say, that's why I'm hesitant. That's why I'm nervous. That's why I'm sheepish. Heavenly father. Heavenly father. Heavenly Father. And remember, this is a model prayer or a pattern. So get this. I don't want you after this message, like every time I pray, I got to say, Father. I used to say Jesus. I said other things. Got to be Father. Jesus is not. That's not the point. He's not saying whenever you pray, use the word Father. What he's driving home to us is that every time you pray, he wants you to understand you're coming. As a child of God with this family status, and He's your Father. Whenever you come, you're coming as a beloved child of God who's already been chosen, forgiven, and brought into the family with all the privileges, stay with me, and characteristics of a child. He's your Father. You're his child. He doesn't expect you to act any differently than a child. So come as a child and pray as a child. A stranger, you think about this, a stranger would not presume to be as intimate with God as he wants us to be because we're his child. Oh. An employee, some of you have a contract basis thought with God. Yeah, he'll do some things for me as long as I'm doing enough for him. An employee would not presume to make the kind of excessive, over-the-top, shoot-for-the-moon kind of request of God as a child would. And even a friend would consider carefully how often you're asking for something but children don't think about any of that, do they? No. No. She calls him daddy. She shoots for the moon. And she barges back in again and again, asking for the same thing because she she knows she's his beloved child and he's her father. He's her father. He's her father. I even remember for eight years I had no office. We had no church building, so my office was in a bedroom downstairs. And everyone knew we got to be careful here. Yes, my office is in the home, but I got to go to work. This can't be like Grand Central Station, in and out, in and out, and in and out. So everyone understood when he goes down, he's at work. Oh, but the youngest—they would the, the door had a gap like that. Oh my goodness. Because I'm a father, some little chubby, dimpled, elbowed arm would come under and a hand would be doing this. There'd be a little voice that would say, me, me. I didn't need help knowing who that is. I didn't say, do you understand who I am? I'm the lead pastor of a church who? <gasps> me got in. <laughs> I opened the door for me. I scooped me up into my arms. I tried to figure out how to work on a sermon with me in my lap. Oh, oh, even when we were in the mobile home and I'm trying to study in seminary, same way. I remember I had a briefcase back then and it would always be open on the floor and I would let the little in and they would just sit in that briefcase. And I tried to teach them, you can't talk to daddy, but you can be with daddy. Mm. <laughs> Which didn't always, even prayer. I tried to give my wife a break. I wanted her to have a relationship with God, but we got five little kids. Kids get up early, right? No matter what you do, somebody's already up. So the deal was, I'll take the kids so that you can have a quiet time. And I had years that I actually prayed at this couch with someone on my back, <laughs> hanging there. They were just happy to be with me. And as a man, I was happy to bear up under that precious little load. As I prayed with some little creature on my back, I wouldn't have done that for any of you. I would say, get Off. This is so inappropriate. I love you. I'm your pastor, but get off. I'll see you later. What's going on? I'm a father. These are my children. And God, the Father, Heavenly Father, wants you to know that's what you have. That's what you have. That's what you have with Him. That's what you have. For every believer, and some of you have yourself in a different category. You do it all the time. Here's what the Bible says, but for every believer, not someone who's earned it, not someone who's matured enough, not someone who's done great things for God, not someone who's taken risks, not someone who really knows their Bible. As soon as you are born again and put your faith in Jesus, every believer now has this Glorious status, child of God. And He's my saying, Father, Father, Father. Father. That's your status now. Not enemy, not stranger, not friend, certainly not soldier or even worker be, but beloved son or daughter. So come on that basis. Because when you come to him on any other basis and under any other status, thinking something different about yourself, you'll be anxious about whether or not you're saying it just right. Are children anxious about saying it just right? You'll be anxious. You'll be guarded and formal and careful. And you'll be quick to think I've probably gone too often. I can't go back I can't go back again. I've messed up like this before. I've got to get it together before I can go back. Those are not biblical thoughts. Child of God. Father, children don't think any of that. And I'm going to tell you something that I hope will shake you that you never, ever forget. Do you realize our father loves to hear our voice do you realize that there's there's psalms there's verses in the bible says he delights in the cry of his children he loves to hear your voice he never says what you again you think you're the only one in the universe i got stuff going on you're driving me nuts never our god loves to hear our voice and he loves to think that you think he's good And he loves me. And he wants the best for me. So I'm just going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I never hold back. I never hesitate. I never wonder if I should go. I go. I go. I go. I go. I talk to him. I cry out to him. And if you're saying, but Brad, I don't deserve that kind of status and this kind of treatment, I would say to you, you're right. You don't. And I don't either. But listen to me. This You did not achieve this kind of incredible status. You received this kind of incredible status because of what Jesus did for you with his perfect life, his atoning death, his shocking resurrection and his glorious ascension to the right hand of the father, where he pleads for you and me day and night. You didn't achieve it. You received it. You received it. Oh, that's how you have this incredible status. And it can't be taken away because it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus who never changes, never changes, never changes. Therefore, your status never changes. Therefore, Your ability to approach freely and boldly never changes, never changes, never changes, never changes. Every minute of every day and night, Jesus pleads for us. You say, what does that look like? What does that mean? Oh, listen, here's what it means. He's our mediator. He's there with the Father. When he sees you coming... He's like, oh my goodness, I love her. I love her. When you get there, he says, we were just thinking about you. Very good thoughts. I would love you. Delighting you. Oh, Father, here she is. Go, go, talk to him. He's waiting, he's ready. Oh my goodness, she's mine. Listen to her. When you come, he's mine. Listen to him, I know, again, Father, again, again. He's mine, she's mine, he's mine, she's mine. And we love you, we delight in you. We want you to come. We want to give you good gifts. Turn to Hebrews chapter four. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews chapter four, beginning in verse 14. Since then, oh, he's been going on and on about how Jesus is better. So this is a book that uses the word better 13 times. We got a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a better hope, a better inheritance. Better, 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 better. Therefore, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's not gonna leave it unclear who this is. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what? Why does this matter? Oh, look at verse 16. If that's the truth of what Jesus has done Let us then with, say it, confidence, confidence. do what? Draw Draw near, draw near, draw near. You don't have to hold back. You don't have to be hesitant. You don't have to comb over your life and say, but if I've been doing enough of all the right things, is he pleased with me today? I don't know if I can come today. Let us then with confidence draw near. And when you're his beloved child, and you've put your faith in Jesus, here's the kind of throne you're coming to. It's not shooting with lightning and thunder and fearful tremblings of judgment. Draw near to the throne of... What kind of throne is it for you? Say it again. And what are you going to find there? Condemnation? Critique? Judgment? Oh, no. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace mercy and find grace to help in time of need for some of you our enemy satan has so deceived you and accused you relentlessly look at you you call yourself a christian look at you look at you even when i hear my people say i'm trying to be a good christian something's wrong you don't try to be a good christian You're a wretched sinner saved by grace. I want to know him more and I'm constantly reminded. I am a wretched sinner. That's why I needed a great savior. And I have one. I have one, Satan. I have one. When he accuses you, you say right back, that's right. I am that bad. And he is that good. I have a savior who intercedes for me day and night so that when I come, the father wants you to come. Some of you are holding back and you're not getting what you need to go through what you're going through. Because when you come, you find mercy and grace to help in time. See, grace doesn't just save you. Grace enables you and empowers you to live in this dark confusing world. When you're not getting enough mercy and grace from the throne of grace, you don't do well. But you got to know who you are and know that you can come. You can come. You can come. Skip over to chapter 7, verse 25. Same book. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost Nobody's in a category that's irredeemable. Nobody's in a category that's too far, too gone. Nobody, but people love to think that and believe that. And your enemy loves to tell you that. He's able to save to the uttermost. Those who, here it is again, draw what? Near to God. Now, you don't draw near with your little performance sheet. Here's why I'm coming near. Look at how well I've been doing, Father. No, those who draw near... Through him, through him, because of Jesus, because of Jesus draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always, 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 so that your status is always the same and the way God sees you is always the same because it's based on Jesus. You can always come, always come, always come. On your best day, right? We have this mentality, had a really good day. Really good day, didn't cuss, read my Bible. Didn't blow up in anger with the kids. Good day, God loves me. Let me give you some news, my friend. On your best day, Jesus makes intercession for you because your best day would never get you in. But Stay with me. On your worst day. Jesus makes intercession for you so that your worst day cannot keep you out. It's all about Jesus. 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 The New King James actually says, Come boldly to the throne of grace because that's how children approach their father boldly. Which leads to my second point. Once you get a hold of your status, who you are, child of God. Then number two, you'll have to adjust your prayers to reflect who you are. So see, this is really important. If you cannot embrace status of child of God, you'll never pray like a child of God. And you'll never pray the way he wants you to pray. When you believe that you're a child of God, then you adjust your prayers to reflect who you are. You say, Brad, what would it look like to pray as a child of God? That's what the parable's about. That's what the rest of chapter 11 is about, all about. How do you pray as a child of God? Not a friend, not a stranger, not a worker bee, not a soldier, but a child of God. Well, listen to me. The phrase that captures it best is actually hard to translate. And translators were hesitant to actually say it the way you should say it in English because it seems disrespectful. And so a number of translators like the NIV and others have actually toned it down. I'm talking about verse eight. Yet because of his, you might have in your Bible persistence. That points us in the right direction, but it's not enough. Persistence can be quite polite. The ESV actually gets it right when the holy spirit chose to use this greek word anadea impudence impudence not a word we use a lot but I'm going to help you here that word impudence in the greek anadea is used 250 times outside of the new testament in other documents and every time it's used anadea it's negative it's negative it's unflattering Because it refers to outrageous and offensive behavior. The word actually conveys a presumptuous and audacious attitude, even to the point of being rude. Rude. Even when you think about persistent and bold, there's appropriate boldness and there's inappropriate boldness right? We're like, we kind of all sense it, except for people that don't have jobs and friends. And that's why you just crossed the line. Bold is good. Inappropriately bold. What's wrong with you socially? We kind of all know, yeah, that not this polite persistence, but not what is wrong with you? This word is the, what is wrong with you? Persistence, outrageous, offensively bold, audacious, to the point of being rude, but stay with me. The whole analogy is we are what? Mature diplomats that know how to say everything right. We've never offended anyone. What are we? Children, children. They don't wonder if it's a good time to ask. They don't wonder if you're in a good mood and they don't wait because someone else is there. They just start asking and keep on asking. Never thinking that maybe they shouldn't ask again. He says, I want you to pray that way. Not timidly, just dropping little hints for the father of what you think maybe would help you. Shamelessly, boldly, boldly asking and continuing to ask over and over and over like a child. And if you think this is a bad interpretation, verses 9 and 10 go on to use the same kind of over-the-top language to describe how he wants us to approach and ask. Look at verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it'll be opened to you. Before we dig into those three verbs, ask, seek, knock, I want you to notice something that you might not pick up on readily enough. I want you to notice who it is that qualifies for this incredible promise he's making. Who is it that can ask and receive, seek and find, knock and get it opened? Look at verse 10. For, say it. Everyone. Every believer. Everyone. Every believer. Believer is invited to be this persistent, this offensively bold. Everyone, everyone, everyone. Jesus doesn't reserve this promise for some kind of elite, elite class of supergroup Christian commandos and prayer warriors that have finally reached that level where they can go like this. You know, every time I'm flying, you're just vividly reminded where you fit in our world. You know, what the gate, they're like, we want to invite all our diamond and medallion and platinum and world alliance kiss your butt people to come now. Please come now. Come now, all of you that are successful and done anything with your life. All the rest of you, unwashed masses, just stand there. We'll tell you when to come and how to come, sheepishly. Right? Every time I fly, I'm not diamond. I'm not medallion platinum. I'm not anything. I'm going to be stuffed in coach. Coach, there won't be a space overhead. They've told me that over and over. Please check your bag. There won't be a space, but I don't want to check it. Because I don't want to wait at the baggage claim. This is not that. This is not that. Right? We're just not used to this in our world. Are you kidding me? Everyone. Everyone. Can come like this because every believer is a child of God and has a heavenly father. Now, you don't earn it, you don't achieve it, you receive it, and it can never be taken from you ever. Wow, the invitation goes out to every child of God, and there does seem to be a progression here in verse 9 because it's one thing to ask. I think it's much more focused and tenacious to seek. And then I think to knock, if you think about it, is to pound at the door repeatedly to get an answer and ramping it up if necessary. Think about how you knock. Nobody knocks once, right? What do you do? And you wait. If nobody comes, what do you do? You knock longer and louder. What do you do if nobody comes? I don't know if you're like me. You go from knuckle to fist and you start pounding. Because a pound kind of reverberates through the home. It affects the foundation. A knock is kind of like a woodpecker. Every time the police have come to our home at 3 in the morning, which praise God it hasn't happened in a while now because children don't live with us. God help me. It was only the pound that got me up. I thought, oh, my word. The entire home is shaking. It's the police. That's what got me up. He's saying there's a progression here. You ask. You seek. You knock. You pound. You don't give up. In other words, don't fall into the trap. Yes, we believe God is sovereign. But don't for a minute think, therefore, I'll just ask once. Because if he wants to, he will. If he doesn't, why keep asking? The Bible does not teach that. Our prayers matter. They matter. And again, go back to the beginning. Prayer is not all about just getting something from God. It is getting to know God. And going again. And going again. And going again. And going again. And being with your Father. But there's more. All three of these verbs, ask, seek, knock, are in the present active indicative So that Jesus is really saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. So there's your answer. I hear it so often as a pastor. I don't know if I should ask again. I don't know. Well, there's your answer. You should. You should. You should. George Mueller is famous. One of my favorite guys that fire me up about prayer. It was in 1983 that I got rocked about prayer, and I've never been the same, praise God. And it was from a class that required me to read about George Mueller, who ran these orphanages in the late 1800s. And he said, thousands of kids, he said, I don't want to just minister to orphans. I want to put on display to a lost and dying world that God answers prayer. So I'm going to keep a record and I'm going to tell nobody what we need. If you asked him what he needed, how much money do you need? Do you need bread? He won't tell you. He's going to pray. He did that for decades so that towards the end of his life, he said, I have a record of 36,000 direct answers to prayer. He said, many of my prayers that I prayed in the early morning were answered by breakfast time. Oh, we love it when it works that way. <laughs> and if it always worked that way, we would pray a lot more, right? Ho! Oh, it was answered by breakfast time. Here's what a lot of people don't know. They love to go around saying how he prayed and a milk truck flicked over right in front of the orphanage and gave them milk. That's so cool. And it is cool. But people don't realize he also knew what it was to persevere in prayer. All of his, his requests were not answered that quickly. He said in November of 1844, I decided to pray for five unconverted friends every day. I'm going to pray every day. Every day. Listen to what he said. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressures of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of five was converted. So in 18 months, one of them got saved. I thanked God and I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and I went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. Now, how long do you think he kept praying For those final two before he said, oh, well, must not be the will of God. 36 years later. 36 years later, he wrote that these two were still not saved, but that he had prayed every day for more than 30 years. And then he said, but I hope in God, I pray on and I look for the answer now because he wrote down their names in his prayer journal. Historians are able to give us what Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story. After he died, those two came to faith in Christ. But he invested 30 years praying for their salvation, praying for their salvation. Do you give up easily, quickly? Do you have to see the answer by breakfast time? Ask, seek, knock. But I want you to get one more thing that our world needs to know and Christians need to understand better. Number three, you will have to know that his answer will always be what you need. It may not be what you want. It may not be what you asked for, but it will always be what you need. So as wonderful as it is to have this Analogy, if he's father, we're child, so throw caution to the wind. Don't don't consider, is it a good time? Can I approach him? Yes. But in keeping with that analogy, he will always be the father and we will always be the child, which means he will always give us what is best and what he thinks we need, not what we want. Yes, that chubby arm under my door, me, gets her in. But wanting to be a good, loving father, did I always give them what they want? Oh, especially in those teen years and young adult years. I remember standing toe to toe and it broke my heart. They would be so angry with me, what they want, where they want to go, what they want to do. And I I said it a hundred times. I love you. I'm your dad. And I'm not going to give you what you want. I know you hate me right now, but I actually love you more than anyone else. The answer is no. I'll give you what you need. Not what you want. Not what you want. Not what you want. So our father is willing to be ill thought of. Because he's going to be good and wise and loving and always give us always what we need. Not necessarily what we think we need or want. You see, Brad, how are you getting this? Final verse, verse 13. Look at it. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Here's, Here's two of my favorite words. I've told you over and over, I love but God. Here's another two that I've got marked everywhere in my Bible. Much more. Much more. You'll see it a lot in Romans, like Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds. Much more. Much more. Much more. Oh, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? When you ask, now, does that surprise you? Does it strike you as like he's changing the subject? He lost his train of thought. Why would he end this way? Ain't nobody asking for the Holy Spirit, Jesus. It's daily, everyday stuff we're asking for. The entire parable was about bread and what's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. Jesus is saying, if you knew what you really needed most, you'd ask for the Holy Spirit. And he's not talking about getting the Spirit because he's talking to believers. You have the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit becoming much more in control of you and real to you and doing what he promised. You realize there's some incredible promises related to the Holy Spirit, what he said he'll do in you. It's the Holy Spirit that makes God's word alive to you so that you don't say, oh yeah, child of God. And you say, oh, that's me. He makes truth alive to you. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin. You say, do I want that? Yes, you do. That's a good thing. It's the Holy Spirit that he said would give you supernatural boldness and the very words to say in moments to speak about Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit who guides you and comforts you and fills you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Oh my goodness, what the Holy Spirit does in us. And see, he said, if you give your children good gifts, how much more? This is one of the greatest gifts You could receive a greater understanding and a filling and a being controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you really knew what the Spirit could do, you'd ask for this, this, this. Don't hear me saying to never ask for bread again or money again. But say, God, and in the meantime, whatever your will is, fill me, help me, empower me. Give me a sense of your presence that you're real with me. I'm not an orphan going through this. And as we close, I want you to know that Jesus did not just tell us to pray, Father. He prayed that way himself. Do you realize? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you will see Jesus saying, Father, in some form, every time but once. When was that and why? It was when he hung on the cross in our place. And was thrown out of the family of God for us. When he became sin for us. He was rejected by God the Father. In that moment as he hung on the cross. That's why he cried out. My God. My God. Not Father. Why have you forsaken me? He paid the price. For us. So that God the Father. Could now adopt us. And forgive us us and love us and be intimate with us by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing never mind what you think you're doing for God or trying to do for God have you received this gift by faith in Jesus so that God can go from being your creator judge To your eternal father. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for the invitation to come boldly, shamelessly, audaciously as children. And ask. Thank you for adopting us into your family. We give you thanks in Jesus name. Amen.